Empty Frames is an independent production. The commentary expressed here is our own and does not reflect the opinions of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum or its staff. To learn more about the museum, including the 1990 theft, please visit the museum's website at www.isgm.org. If you have any critical information relating specifically to the 1990 theft, please contact the museum's security director via the options provided on the museum's website. The museum continues to offer a reward totaling $10 million for information that can lead to the return of the stolen artwork. We are bothered by the loss the art world suffered in 1990, and we are not content with the status quo. One stolen painting to note is from Manet, a French artist who created Che Tortoni, circa 1880. It's an elegant depiction of a man sketching a half-consumed beer on the table as he calmly looks at his audience. We started this podcast to raise awareness of the theft and to show our support for the ongoing recovery efforts. While those recovery efforts progress, as they do daily, we encourage our listeners to visit the museum, to appreciate its incredible collection, both past and present, and to donate directly to the museum through its website. Again, if you enjoy this podcast and you feel as we do about the missing artwork, the most productive way for you to express your view is to donate directly to the Gardner Museum via its website. Go to isgm.org and look for the Join and Give tab, where there are options to make a donation of any size to support the museum's mission. Please donate today. And when you do, let us know on Twitter so we can personally thank you there. Thanks again. On March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits, stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames, a heist story. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios. What's up, Lance? Not too much. How are you today? Doing great. We uh, have a real fun interview to bring you again with uh, Ulrich Boser. We uh, we traveled down to Washington D.C. Visited him in person. Yes, he came to our uh, our hotel suite, and we had a really really great conversation with him. And it was nice to meet the man face to face and get a an indication of um, you know the passion that he has for the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, and even after all these years, right? And so we we'll ask him some of the questions that we have at this point in our 
investigation. And also, we were sent down to Washington, D.C. to check out a uh, wonderful exhibit. And of course, Mr. K sent us down there, and he wanted us to check out the Vermeer exhibit. How great was this, Lance? That was insane. Yeah. That was insane. That, I think that's when a lot of this whole art culture and because we've always been fans, but this was this was at the National Gallery of Art. And it was incredible to see the massive lineup of people filing into the exhibition titled Vermeer and the Masters of Genre Painting, Inspiration and Rivalry. And uh, a lot of them are smaller than you picture, I feel like, a lot of, a lot of his uh, paintings. Right. They, I mean, the size of maybe a, you know, the if you like a notebook, a notebook or a laptop or something or. OK, so we're going to get into the Ulrich interview in just a little bit. But before we do, I wanted to read this uh, email we got. That was really cool. Came from someone named Jody. Jody says, hi there. I am homesick from work and was able to listen to the two most recent Empty Frames podcast episodes, which I am enjoying quite a bit. I worked at the Gardner Museum at that time. Actually, I worked there two times within the 89 to 91 time period as a gardener. Yes, I was a gardener at the Gardener. <laughs> That's amazing. What I have always wondered about, though, is how thorough the FBI could have been with their initial investigation. And here's why. I live in an apartment building right next to the Gardener, which is how I initially got the job. The week previous to the heist, I not only left my job there, but I moved to Watertown, which is a suburb of Boston, a part of Boston. No one came to question me, not once. Anyway, I don't have any information to add other than that, and also to further confirm that security at the museum was definitely quite lax. After leaving the Gardener, I worked at Wordsworth Books in Harvard Square in Cambridge, but then returned to the museum a while later. I don't remember the exact dates of either of my stints of employment, but left at the end of 1991 to go to Pennsylvania to study horticulture. I also continue to be fascinated by the story and I'm looking forward to further podcasts. Thank you, Jody. Thanks, Jody. I bet I bet you didn't think that your your email would be read on the very next episode. <laughs> it's pretty cool to get an email like that from somebody who's so connected to the museum and and there at the, you know, during that time frame. Yeah, and and I want to thro- throw a question back Jody's way because I would love to hear the scuttlebutt from those days would love to know what the people who worked at the museum thought about the heist who could have perpetrated it i know every job that i worked at lance and have worked at if there was some kind of theft there the employees would be talking everyone would have had a suspect i guess i'm just saying i'm curious who the guards thought were involved that's an interesting point you make because i have worked in places where there have been thefts and i remember them and it certainly wasn't a theft that you know today i look back on and go wow that theft ended up being half a billion dollars i i would remember that so i would love to exactly find out what amongst the employees what what was the talk at the time who did those ones at your places of employment uh story for another time also jody lived in a apartment building right next to the gardener um that's interesting during that time. Yeah, it's it's super interesting that Jody didn't get questioned after exactly. they quit right after the heist. Uh, it's super suspicious. You would think anyone who fit that category would have been questioned thoroughly because the idea is that there's an inside angle uh, that someone there at least ha- you know, was the thieves' inside source. And in fact, we're going to get into that a little bit later with Ulrich. The more I read this email, the the more strange it seems that this person lived right next to the museum, worked at the museum, and 
it never came like the police it never came up to the police that this person could have either had seen something from the apartment or worked there I, I don't know the boston police did not really work with the fbi on the investigation in the early days when did the fbi come in within a day or two yeah yeah, yeah okay. immediately so they never really worked together, unfortunately. I feel like there might have been some information that the Boston Police Department would have had that could have helped the FBI, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Okay, so let's get into the Ulrich audio. You know, we're sitting in a hotel room here. Hotel rooms often get robbed. You can do that. What? I don't know. I mean, we're in a single room, but we could rob this less than a minute, you know, yeah. maybe two on the outer stretches. 80 minutes is an incredibly long period of time, and... You know, it's weird when I, I think about this, I like reflect to things that I did as, as a kid, right? Where you're like kind of nervous and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And it's like time goes, 80 minutes is an incredible long period of time. And when I think about why would you cut, right? I mean, when you could, you could be so much more careful, uh, whether it's the van, right? You could have taken them out with their frames. You could have had seven people up there and like a, a moving team sort of gently moving them out Fireman with rope it up. Right, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so that just sort of adds some more mystery to it. When I think, uh, reflecting myself, looking at other robberies, to stay in there for so long, you would want one, two, you'd want lookouts, right? I mean, and, you know, we're in pre-cell phone days. I'm thinking kind of like maybe some walkie-talkies or, or something that allows them to, to communicate. It's a great point because, so if they did have a lookout and, yep. and one of the walk, you know, the guy in the walkie said, cops are here, yep. where would they even have gone? You know, in the museum, I feel like there's no easy exit from there. Yeah, but just, um, I, I, I think that's a great point. In my mind, though, like, I just, I can't express, like, how long, look, three seconds is a long time. That that's, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> so that was three seconds, right? I mean, it's, it, that itself is uncomfortable, right? Yeah. I mean, even as we're talking, an, an hour, I mean, we're, we're talking movie length mm-hmm. here. Uh, certainly, no doubt, there have been documentaries that are less than, than 80 minutes. So uh, that really just sort of sticks in my mind, Um and so where they would have gone, I, I don't know the answer to that. It's, it's a great one. Uh, you know, could you have uh, read this before the museum is, is redone, you know, scramble somewhere. Mm. Uh, but uh, I, right. I don't know the, the answer to that. It's just that, that feeling of, of, of anxiousness, of anxiety committing uh, clearly a felony. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, wanting some, some support. Okay, it's good to put that in perspective, I think, once in a while and kind of rehash this point, Lance. 81 minutes, it's it's an interesting length of time. It's not some smash and grab job. These guys were in there for a long time. Exactly. It's not a smash and grab job, but the result looks like it's a smash and grab job. And he has a he has a great point about that. I think, you know, we were talking just about the length of time, 81 minutes. That's the time most movies are 90 minutes or, you know, between 80 and, and 100 minutes. These so, days they're longer, but yeah, a typical comedy is about 95 minutes. So a typical comedy is about 95 minutes. They went in there and essentially, you know, could have gone in there and sat down and watched an entire movie during this time frame. I asked Ulrich where the thieves would have run if they had a lookout who told them the police were were coming into the museum. Would these thieves have been trapped, essentially, in the museum? And from what I know of the museum, that is to be true. So I guess my point in asking the question wasn't to say, oh, Ulrich, there's no way out. That's not it. 
it's it was more to say I'm not sure that they did have a lookout who had a walkie in because there's almost no purpose anyway. It's almost they were positive no police were coming that there was no threat here of police or anyone else. You could look at it like that and I and I see that um that they went in there and they took their time because they had it all under control including anybody who worked there. They had everything under control and there was no need for a lookout. But you could put a lookout at the um, at the at one end of Palace Road and the other end of Palace Road, and if any police were to approach from that direction or any of the the any direction, if you had a lookout there, they could stall the police. They could maybe fake a you know a, a broken down car, or they could fake drunk and you know just Crash stumble into around the or something like that. And another lookout there sends a walkie signal to somebody in the museum. Okay. It would have had to have been a little more intricate than than just one guy. Then probably, I would I would imagine that yeah. it would well, be. Well, more that's intricate. what we've speculated anyway. That there was certainly way more than two people involved that night and involved in the heist altogether. So that would be in line with what our, what we think anyway. So if there was a lookout that didn't want to raise any suspicion and they were inside the building, then at the very least, if there was a third person inside the building, at the very least. I would imagine that they would be the ones at the security desk monitoring the camera that was pointed outside. Same one that we see in the night before video. I think the names that that you come up with in your book, in addition to some of the other names that are up there, I think the names are there. Like I think we have the people who did it. I think the group of people probably even too. Yeah, I'm less certain about that we have like, we know the two individuals who walked in as much as we have like that clustering, right? Whether yeah. it's Lenny DiMuzio, George Rice, Faithler, David Turner, Mel, Mel, like you have, yes. a, you have that kind of, you know, people like love to talk about network allow. You got that, you got the crew-ish, I feel like we're, we feel good about. Yeah, and it's and it's hard to kind of relate to that crew in a way because I'm, I'm not a criminal. Right. Um, I, Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> Problem. Why do guys turn to weird solutions or do nothing when they can turn instead to medicine and science, Lance? I think it's because of the awkward doctor visits that men just don't like being a part of. I don't like it. Do you? No, never. Absolutely not. And here's a stat for you. 66% of men start losing their hair by age 35. Oh, so we only have, God, like another 10 years to go. More like minus 10. But when you start to notice hair loss, it's too late. So reach out, not you, Tim, because you have that Kennedy mane. Our listeners, reach out and put your hands on your head. How much hair are you going to feel a year from now if it's just business as usual up there? I'm doing it right now, and it's not business as usual anymore. Well, the solution, Lance, is forhims.com. It's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness Woo! for men. Medical grade solutions, real doctors offering well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. Now, we talked to the co-founder ourselves, and we got a deal for our listeners here of Empty Frames. We were on the phone for a long time, and we, we hashed this out. Our listeners get a trial month of everything you need to keep your hair for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy, but as we know, no one likes to go to those awkward doctor visits. Exactly. I'm shaking my head. It would cost hundreds. But instead, go to forhims.com slash frames. That's forhims, F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash frames. Forhims slash frames.
but we read Miles Connor's book, yeah. and uh, and you get a good feel of how it works. So I go on to ramble into a question of sorts, Lance, which uh, is asking, Ulrich, what he thinks about Bobby Donati being involved in the heist and that Eagle Finial atop of the Napoleonic flagpole that maybe that was taken by Donati as a calling card. The FBI has made it very clear that, well, very clear, but they, they say they know who robbed the museum, right, there's two individuals, and they say that they know the paintings kind of moved down. And they, they seem, in my opinion, to very... We can parse some of their sayings, but they seem to say this mob connection. It's very easy to see the mob connection through Bobby, through Miles. Uh, look, a name like uh, David Houghton, which you know uh, already gets into some weird. Is it Gaelic spellings anyway? H O U G H T O N, right? I mean, you're getting clearly you're moving away from 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 mobsters or right. people who want to be affiliated with that. Um, but there's no doubt that. Either the thieves knew Miles, knew of Miles, respected Miles, had heard of his antics, and so uh, it's like a little bee's nest or, or, or yeah. ant's nest, yeah. It is really strange that you'd be looking into all of these things that were stolen, and you're right, you're in a room that's right next to where the finial was taken, and it just you just didn't notice? Yeah, and the other thing that's weird is is that it's it's fairly high up, so um, if if you're simply standing, I mean, even if you're you know six foot or taller, you wouldn't be able to reach up. You you had to kind of clamber on yeah. something and grab it from the the top, right? I mean, you, you, there was some intentionality around it, which is why we keep going back to Bobby Donati, who said that if this uh, eagle finial is that's mine, that's going to be my calling card. We also talked to. Ulrich about the Ming vase and whether or not he felt that was part of the whole quote-unquote calling card with the Eagle Finial. I'm still a little skeptical on this front. And, okay. And so, you know, the coup is, I mean, if you're really interested in Chinese or Asian art, they're far more valuable things to take. When you look at the origin of this type of Miles Connor story, it's clear that a lot of it kind of takes place afterwards, right? So you have, uh, whatever, we all know sort of confirmation bias, right, that you sort of look past. And so there was a particular point in time, I'm happy to, where we go in this, where it's clear that Miles could have made money. He had other interests to tell a story in which it would make sense that he had access. So in other words, if he uh, were to, let's say, just sort of elaborate on, on details to, to make his position seem more robust, Anyway, so I'm, there, there, some of these things where Miles tells post-case don't necessarily... I mean, uh, I'm not articulating this well, but they I, seem a little bit... I think bit, I know, you know what you're saying. Yeah. So, so you're saying that there, if, if Miles were to write this book and say, I cased it with Bobby Donati, he said he, the eagle, um, and Bobby died uh, a year after the robbery, is like no victim in that. You know, there's sure, no, and... and Look, it, we all have incentives. Line, right? yeah. We all, and, and so, uh, you know, one, there's the issue that, um, you know, Miles is, is suffering mm -hmm. uh, and, and in some form of cognitive decline. But also, you know, when we, when we think about the Mashburg case, there are these periods where it's, it's very clear that he has an incentive to um, really embed himself into this case. So mm -hmm. uh, is he telling these stories so that they fit? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I like to think he's being <laughs> completely honest. Yeah, uh, but I, I don't but it's, know. It's, it's kind of weird to, to trust thieves, right? <laughs> I mean, you're sort of like on one yeah. side, on the other side. But at the same time, it's almost I, I feel more comfortable knowing that whatever you hear from these criminals, it's probably the truth because they. I feel like they don't. I feel like they're too scared to lie about certain things. He remembered so many details, or at least there's so many details written in the book. I don't know yeah. if they're from memory or from you know he, he pulled them out of the sky a little bit. 
like so it's it's one or the other. Like yeah. he's either got a great memory yeah. or he just like yeah. went off a little bit yeah. on some of these the things. So that's a really interesting clip, Lance. I find uh, the topic was Miles lying, or could his book have been embellished to include more Gardner stuff than in actuality? I, I think that that idea is really compelling. Once again, we're back to Miles Connor, whose name just keeps coming up with this. And this was done before we had spoken officially with Jenny, who told us more details about Miles. And I don't think Miles would be lying to you know, for the purpose of, I mean, Miles is not living in a lot of wealth right now. And if he wanted to cash in at any time, he could have made up a bunch of stuff. Right. Let me suggest though, Jenny said the hook about the book was the Gardner heist. And then we said, well, you know, there's only about 10% Gardner content in there, but she said that that was the hook to getting the book sold. So maybe there really is, you know, an incentive Maybe just Miles' life wouldn't have sold books or gotten a Harper Collins publisher if uh, if it was just about his life of crime and had nothing to do with the gardener. So, I mean, we talked about Miles being incredibly intelligent. Maybe this is like a few steps ahead that he's thought of. Could be, but then aren't you introducing other people within his circle that have told him similar things, which would mean that he's he's lied to them or they're lying to him or like, you know, Houghton telling him one thing about we did this and you know you know what I mean like those details here's the thing about that now in in the interview my question seemed a little confusing but what I was getting at is Donati and Houghton those are the two guys that we are saying that Miles worked with and potentially they stole things that would potentially help Miles get out of jail maybe that never happened at all maybe Bobby Donati never said I'll steal the Eagle Finial, and maybe David Houghton never came to see Miles, and those two guys are dead. They've been dead since 1991. So what I meant with that, there's no victims here. He can lie about these two guys, his, his former friends, and there's no victim there. He just might make a little extra money because of it. That is a really interesting speculative concept, right? Got a, you got a great story about your life, and the majority of your life is not about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. And then separately, you have Jenny Seiler, the author, who's contacted by her agent to cover the life of this career criminal, the fascinating life of this career criminal. But we need we need there to be something about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum because his name kind of comes up with that. So maybe he hears that and he goes, sure, yeah, I was told this and this and this. Also, Miles had just gotten out of prison before he started writing the book with Jenny. And we know that William Youngworth uh, sold a lot of Miles's artwork that he had put William Youngworth in charge of. As far as, I, as far as we can tell, his treasure, his art treasure was sold, and he didn't make that money. From what we've heard from Jenny, though, the way Miles is existing currently doesn't suggest that this man cashed out. So as smart if if this in, you know, the hypothetical scenario that we are we're we're introducing right now, his his plan sort of backfired because he didn't make all all the all the riches that he thought he was going to make. Right. And if he was lying in the first place, couldn't he just come up with like a sequel now and said, Hey, these are all these facts that I didn't tell the first time and this book is more about the Gardner heist than my previous book. And again, this is all just a hypothetical scenario. 
it would seem more unlikely that he wasn't a part of any sort of previous casing of the museum, any even like informal planning of robbing the museum. And just given all the characters and all the you know things we know about them, it just makes more sense that it did happen this way. But it's an interesting hypothetical to explore. And just a side note about the finial, that is the one piece of art that was stolen which can be returned for reward to the museum separate from the other 12 items. So there's still a $100,000 reward simply on the eagle finial. Just a side note. And now we ask Ulrich about casing the joint. Just sort of thinking about this, I I don't want to get too overzealous. On one side, right, I mean, what is casing, right? I mean, um, let's say uh, tomorrow we, um, you know, there's the uh, museum here in in D.C. Um, uh, There's the Phillips Gallery. Uh, We walk through and we're like, God, you know, there's a Ming vase here. And Mm. what we've learned from our theft isn't much, but we know stealing the high-end items, eh, but like Ming vases, uh, you know, worth 10, 20 grand, weak provenance, we could steal one here. But we're just like, I mean, the, the idea of like how much they cased it. Uh, one thing that I think we, we do know, right, is, is that the kind of 70s, 80s, that's when the art market really starts to heat up, right? Where you have this issue, I think generally, right, where the, the value of the paintings is really outstripping everything else. Uh, that seems frankly rational, but also like a, a museum like the Garden. This is like a house museum, right? It's sort of like, oh, you know, your old grandma Betsy died, she leaves behind this stuff. And then suddenly it's like, wow, you know, uh, she had some really valuable stuff. And that valuable stuff is starting to be traded, and that valuable stuff is trying to be traded, to be traded, to be traded. And you can, you know, create loans on your yeah. paintings. And casing to me is like very purposeful. And so, as, as opposed to like meandering, right. thinking, Miles Connor created a a type of business model, maybe one might say, right? This idea that you can steal paintings and you can get out of jail. And that creates, I think also this, you know, second part of that, right? Which is, um, that's very valuable, right? Beyond money, right? It's, it's, it's a type yeah. of political capital. So when we think about casing, I'm excited that you, you pulled out a map. I feel like <laughs> one of these was, was taken. Yeah. Don't you? I mean, for sure. whatever, whatever they had in 1990. I mean, wouldn't yeah. you have, I mean, if I was really thinking about robbing the museum, this is free, they give it out, you would have walked through the place. You know what's interesting about Tapestry. the museum is that it's uh, it's, a, it's a whole lot oh, yeah. bigger than you, you would, it, would imagine it to be. Especially if, you, if your introduction to this museum is the heist, yep. you think it's like three rooms. Okay, there's some stuff to unpack there, Lance. I think it's really interesting when Ulrich called what Miles did, stealing a Rembrandt painting from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and negotiating himself a lesser prison sentence. He called that maybe a business model that Miles created which is really interesting, I guess not technically a business model because he didn't get money off of it, but it was a model that seems to have been recreated by possibly the Thieves of the Gardener. Yeah, a negotiation tactic. So, um, yeah, he did create, I guess, this this model that no one had thought of before or no one had successfully done before. Don't you picture like a roundtable discussion, and it probably never happened, but I always picture this roundtable discussion of all these criminals and you know, high to mid-level criminals, um, maybe then and they invite in the lower-level criminals and they say, we don't know exactly what we're going to do with all of these paintings. 
and all of this all of this stuff that we're about to steal because we've been casing the museum but we know that we can do a lot of stuff with it so maybe all of that was on the table maybe but I, and i know that 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 meeting didn't actually happen but my brain always goes there that they knew that there was a, a there was more which i guess makes it like tragically ironic for them because they knew that they could possibly do a lot with this with the the stolen property but nothing has ever been done because they didn't get how hot it was going to be. Right. And here are the facts. Miles Connor in 1975 stole a Rembrandt painting and negotiated himself a lesser prison sentence. 15 years later, there were three Rembrandts stolen from the gardener. So there were 13 pieces altogether. Two of them we think are calling cards. Three of them were Rembrandts. So can we say that the Rembrandts might have been stolen for this purpose, the same purpose that Miles used the Rembrandts for? Sure, we can we can certainly you know theorize about theorize it. about that. Yeah, I mean they didn't touch any of the Italian stuff in an Italian themed home in an Italian themed museum. They went for the Rembrandts and they went for they went for Dutch and they you know lots of theories about why, but they had plenty of time, as we said before, they had plenty of time to. Take whatever room they want. to room and take one from each each era. And it's interesting about the eagle finial that we were mentioning before, how it was uh, set high up. You'd need some sort of, you know, maybe a stepladder or box, um, something to hoist yourself up, which is why they it wasn't immediately noticed when they were doing a recon after the uh, after the heist. So exactly. You don't you don't of all the things that are at eye level where the finial was you're making the effort to go to you know hop on hop on your buddy's shoulders so you can grab this finial it's yeah. there's a purpose behind it is what i'm saying whoever took the finial went out of their way to yeah. take it yeah specifically that not that not a more valuable piece of art which would be right in front of them yeah everywhere yeah. on every single Seriously. wall in yeah. front of them and now we ask Ulrich if the inside source at the museum can be identified by what was taken from the security room so they took the security tape, right? The, the thieves took the security tape from the security room. Yep. But they left the hard drive. And they didn't take the tape from the night before. So I guess, the, yeah, the, the question is, like, it couldn't have been the head of security who did it. Right. Because he would have known about the hard drive and the tape from the night before. Right. So is it, does that mean that it was definitely a guard? Or is there some other position there that could have, like, w would not have known about that, do you know? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I'm, I'm running on pure speculation, but it seems like something a guard would know. Right, like you're yeah. just sort of like, that's just, you know, head of security's area, and this is where he keeps those tapes. Maybe you have to change the tapes, but pure speculation. Right, and, and he doesn't know, like, all the detail. He doesn't know, like, about the hard drive or, or what to do with the tape. From yeah, the I, mean, I reflect on sort of, you know, bosses previous, right? We are like, yeah, oh, that's yeah. kind of what they do each day. I'm not really sure. The tapes from the night of the robbery were taken, uh, they neglected to take the hard drive, and they didn't take the tape from the night before. The tape from the night before was released in a last few years. Yeah, 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 in the last few years, and it was overlooked in the evidence room. Does it seem weird to you that law enforcement overlooked the only other tape that could have been? They took the tapes from the robbery, yep. the, the, and and they misplaced it in evidence, or it was overlooked in evidence. It's a tape. Yeah. Well, how is a tape misplaced? Placed. How, how do you overlook that after, it, like, 25 or maybe it was 23 years later, yeah. this tape surfaced? I'd have to go back to my notes. My understanding is that it surfaced earlier, but mm -hmm. they only decided to release it then. 
right? I mean, I think there's a bigger perspective here that the museum and um, the federal government has, has taken this idea, right? It's, it's the reverse of what crisis communications would tell you, you know, release all your bad news at once, right? This opposite oh, okay. view is right, just sort of trickle it out. And so when they have little bits of evidence that's going to make headlines, uh, that's going to uh, you know uh, get some more attention to it. That's that's my speculation on that. So it wasn't just sort of like, oh, did you there check box thirty two? And you're like, yeah. holy cow, this. Um, as much as um, you know, we're, we're looking at a strategic decision that look when we look at the Whitey Bulger case or, or really many many other cases, whether it's art, uh, but these longer term cases, right? You need the public to come forward, right? You need mm. people to come forward. You need that last little puzzle case. How do you get that? little slight trickle of information, keep keeping it up in the news, keep, whether it's podcasts like yours, newspapers in Boston, uh, you know, radio shows in uh, Rhode Island, right? You just, you want to keep up that type of thing. So what you're saying is they sat on it intentionally to keep the trickle of information going out there at the pace that they determined. You know, you're asking such great questions. I want to make sure that uh, more than law enforcement, clearly, I'm, I'm excited about raw speculation, and yeah. then that middle ground where you're like, actually, I kind of have some evidence, so uh, maybe we'll call it, you know, gentle bullshitting. And then there's <laughs> sort of like, we have facts here, right? Yeah. We know the thieves, and so this is is much more in the, the speculation, mm-hmm. not the the gentle bullshitting. What we've seen from the museum, right? You raise the reward and then lower it again. I mean, this isn't like yeah. uh, Jeopardy, right? I mean, they've done all these types of tactics that I think are very smart. To, to raise the public profile. Uh, from the outside, it's like, well, that's weird. Like, why would you raise the reward and lower? But Set a I think deadline it's and then lower yeah. and then put it back this to the 10 bizarre, million. right? Imagine if he was your child, right? You were like, today, I will accept from the Roberts for Susie 5 million, but tomorrow. Right, <laughs> right, nutty. right. So that's interesting. We start talking about the video that was released in the last few years about the night before the heist. And Ulrich theorizes that it was only released recently because that's the museum's M.O. They like to shake things up. They like to keep it fresh. They like the news to trickle out there. Right. He, and also he, he indicated that it was, uh, you know, the, the feds and it was, it's law enforcement's um, tactic at times to, uh, like you said, trickle out the information. Um, it's it's still a little odd to me that it's been it, it came out in 2015 when they said that they uncovered this, but who knows? Maybe maybe there was something that came to law enforcement that they needed to get out. You know, the, now the timing's right to release this video. Might as well release it. Um, you know, I it's hard for us to say what the right protocol with something like that would be to do because we're not in insider in this case or anything like that. But we've certainly found that community crowdsourcing is a successful way to investigate things, or at least can be successful. So that is a good thing that they put it out there, whether it's late or not. Yeah, any sort of um, investigation that you enlist the help of outsiders, you're going to get a certain amount of um, certain amount of you know non information. But anything like that, you're just going to have to like vet through all of the information. And there's always little nuggets in there. That's, that's good. And who knows what they got after they put that video out, they might have the FBI might be sitting on something that came directly from that video. We were, we were just talking about the security. And, uh, when we last spoke, you said that, um, pretty much it was unequivocally an inside job. 
Yeah, uh, you said that a lot of a lot of, uh, lot I of circumstances. There's some inside. There's some inside angle. Yeah, yeah. So inside job to me is like you know that one of the guards was the thief, and we were right. quickly. But yeah, there's some inside angle. Why don't Why don't we talk about the second guard, the other guard that wasn't yep. uh, a bath? Yep. Why uh, doesn't Why doesn't anybody talk about this guy? Yeah. Um. For a while, I was wondering if there even was another security guard, and yep. maybe I've misread that somewhere. So Lance, when you look at this video, the surveillance video that was released in 2015 of the night before the heist, it's very, it's it's quite compelling, isn't it? Yeah, it's compelling in its content, and it's also compelling in the the time frame, right? This is almost exactly 24 hours before the heist itself. And you see some of these players, you see Richard Abbott in the video buzzing this mysterious person in. You see this car on Palace Road, uh, the, the entry, the same entrance that the thieves used on the night of the heist about 24 hours later. This, uh, this seemingly a hatchback vehicle reverses on the road, parks like two feet away from the curb. The driver, maybe, someone who comes from that direction, from the shadows, walks towards the museum, goes in, and then comes back out, and then turns his parking lights on? Yeah, so what we're looking at is the uh, the footage from the camera that is posted to capture everything that happens on the street, and the video shows the cut between that and what's happening inside at the security desk. So you're, And there's a timestamp on there, so you can get a sense of... Um, how things are happening happening sort of simultaneously. Now the car does reverse down Palace Road towards the entrance of the museum. That's a one way. And they're going the wrong way in reverse down Palace Road. And between the two cuts, you see simultaneously the interior of the security desk. You see somebody get out of the vehicle and get buzzed in to into the uh, museum. Now one of the interesting things to me is that Abbott didn't remember what happened. He doesn't, he's, he's been shown this video and he doesn't remember that happening. And we can chalk that up to, well, it could have just been something that happens on any night that anybody's working. Like, what do you remember from jobs that you've worked 28 years ago, 25 years ago when he was shown this 25 video. years. Yeah. So if you were to say someone asked you what, you know, what happened on this night 25 years ago, you'd say, I don't remember. But it's not the night before the largest property theft in, in history. Former museum guards say they recognize this mystery person who comes into the museum that night. Some feel that this person looked like Larry O'Brien. Who, who worked at the gardener. This person was the gardener's deputy security chief at the time. O'Brien died in 2014, but his brother, nor the museum's then security director, could confirm that the person on the tape was O'Brien. So, so that's really confusing. So some guards think it is. Some former guards think it is. Even his brother says, I don't know. <laughs> I can't confirm that that was him. His brother was interviewed when he was in his 80s. Right. And his brother said, yeah, that sort of looks like my brother, but that's not the way he wore his hair. His hair wasn't quite like that. I can't remember if he said that it was longer or shorter, but he said that's not the way my brother wore his hair. And 
I would say that the majority of the people that worked with O'Brien looked at that and said, that's O'Brien. That's how he, that's how he walks. That's sort of his gait. And that's how he, that's the same type of jacket that he was wearing, I believe. Um, and it was not uncommon for people in that position to make random check-ins like that. What's weird to me about the video itself was um, not weird, but I guess just something that stands out. And, you know, with, with all of this, you start to fall into this whole there's a deeper meaning to everything or there's like something hidden or some meaning he, when he pulls out the, the book. Like he's looking at something and it's pretty clear he has something that looks like a little notebook that he's uh, that he's looking at when he's by the security desk. Um, the thing that is a standout in my brain is that Abbott just doesn't remember this happening Af- the night before the most significant moment in his life happened. Well, I'm not so sure it's the most significant moment in his life. Looking back, it's the most talked about moment of his life. To him, probably not that significant. Sure. Would you say it's like top five? I don't know. To him, I have no idea. He seems like an odd duck. Probably not. Now, our Muddy River fact checker commented, and this is just his opinion on the video. He's wondering what the point is. It was sent to George Burke, the attorney in in Quincy, and he says that the person who sent it can't come forward because he fears for his life, but also says he was in the antique business and knew Miles Connor. Now, how hard is it going to be to figure out who it was if you traveled in those circles? This goes back to what Ulrich said about perhaps this is a way that law enforcement or whoever's looking for the answers here is trickling out information. So is it a trickle of information or is it someone just sort of trying to get everything tied into this local uh, toughs theory, like tough guy theory, like it's always a part of these circles. So it's just something to think about. Thank you for listening to Empty Frames a co-production of Crawl Space Media and Audio Boom. Original music by Jared Jensen and Kevin McLeod. Please learn more by going to EmptyFramesPodcast.com and CrawlSpacePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. Follow Empty Frames on Twitter at Empty underscore Frames. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as Empty Frames Podcast. And if you worked at the Gardner Museum like Jody... Please contact us. We would love to talk to you, especially if you worked at the Gardener during that time in 1990. Please let us know. Even if you think you don't have anything significant. So please contact us at EmptyFramesPodcast.com. And check out some press that we've gotten lately, one from Getty Images and one from the Improper Bostonian. Links in the show notes. And next time on Empty Frames, we speak to Liz Lenz, who wrote the article, The Scandalous Legacy of Isabella Stewart Gardner, Collector of Art and Men. That was for Broadly, which is a division of Vice. And we start talking about the actual person of Isabella Stewart Gardner. It's a fascinating discussion. It's really not that hard to imagine the impact she had on society, because I think any woman who's ever, you know, asserted herself in any sort of masculine realm understands the frustration and the pullback. And yes, the things that she was doing don't necessarily seem so radical. Perhaps now some of the charges leveled against her were dancing too much, ice skating in the public gardens, smoking. (laughs) 